one of the pastors I'm preaching on tonight is a blank page in the middle of your Bible. So I can do that pretty quick, right? Where I didn't realize tonight we were going to do the intertestament period. I didn't realize the fact that I, back when we first quit meeting because of COVID, I skipped the book of Solomon. And uh, we skipped it, and you say, it's in the Bible, right? Yep, that means it's part of the Bible. Does that mean it needs to be covered? Yes, it needs to be covered. And uh, I remember witnessing and different things, a few people that I've witnessed to in the past. Where one guy says, I believe all the Bible's inspired except for Song of Solomon. I'm like, you're just dumb, but I didn't tell him. I thought that in my head. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, if you need it, either in the side room or over here, there are two different outlines you need. One pile has Song of Solomon, and one pile has the intertestament period. And so what we will do is we're going to start with Song of Solomon, and then we'll do the between Malachi and Matthew at the end tonight. And then if anybody's missing anything, the whole testament after tonight will truly be done, since I skipped Song of Solomon. So we'll have that done tonight. And then next week we'll start the New Testament and so if we are through, how many books are in the Old Testament? Anybody know tonight? William? 39. So if you can take 66 and subtract 39, how many are left after tonight? William? 27. You know your math. Good. All right. So Song of Solomon, chapter number one. Let's take our Bibles and turn there. And we will dive into the message tonight. Are you ready? Here we go. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. We're going to read verse number two, and then we'll take a break there and see what the whole book's about. Are you ready? Here we go. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. And we will leave it right there and have a word of prayer, and we'll talk about, there's a lot more there. And married couples, I suggest you read through it. Young people in the room, wait till you get older to read it, okay? Actually, I shouldn't have said that. I remember my parents, we, we would read through the Bible every year. And as kids, they would always skip Song of Solomon. And they're like, you need to wait till you're older to read that. So the next day, I thought I was older, so I read it myself. But anyways, let's have a prayer, and then we'll dive in. My Father, we love you, and we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this passage. And we look at it tonight, and some people throughout history have looked at this book. Why in the world is it a part of Scripture? But there's so many beautiful pictures that are pictured here in Song of Solomon. And it's an important book in the Bible. All scripture is given by inspiration. That means every verse is important. You told us that not one jot or one tittle, not one dotting of the I or the crossing of the T would be taken out. It means this book's important. Pray that as we study it tonight and as we look at it, that you just do a work in our hearts. Meet with us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Song of Solomon is one of the most unique books in the Bible. Probably is the most unique. In my almost 30 years of being a Christian, it's probably the book I've heard the least preaching on in all those years of being a Christian and being in church. It's a book that celebrates the beauty of the physical relationship in marriage. Its primary design is to be read privately. And think about this, even ancient Israel, Jews were not allowed to read Song of Solomon until the age of 30 or until they got married. That's when they would read this book. And tonight, I'm not going to go deep into the details on the book. If you want a deep outline on that, come to a marriage retreat 
or do it for yourself. I'll give you a deep in, in detailed look at the book then. But I'm going to give you some biblical principles from Song of Solomon tonight, and it will be a help to us as we go through the book. Probably one of the simplest studies we'll do. And there are a lot, there's a lot of spiritual meaning here, a lot of pictures through the book of Song of Solomon. And I think the most, the most beautiful picture and the thing that we see is Christ and his love for the church. We see those tied together. When we read Ephesians chapter number 5 and we read about Christ and his love for the church, how he gave himself, and we see how husbands are supposed to love their wives, it's a beautiful picture of that relationship. Now, really, if we were to go through here and study this, what I want to talk about for a few minutes tonight is pretty simple. Song of Solomon, the simple book of love is what it is. And what I want you to understand is this, our world has corrupted love. Our world has taken the way that God meant for talked about in the principles of God's word, and our world goes the exact opposite. And something that's sad to me is, you know, we look sometimes and we think, Pastor, you're going to preach out a Song of Solomon on a Wednesday night? you got teenagers and kids in the room. And yet the stuff you let your kids watch on TV is worse than anything I talk about in this book tonight, and it's biblical. Our world ruins what love is all about. God's word, the way that God designed it to be, we understand it's so different. One pastor wrote of the sexual revolution and its effects on America. I want you to listen to this tonight. In this revolution, simple changes investigated profound effects. Um, contraception replaced conception. The price of sexual activity seemingly dropped dramatically. Pleasure was separated from responsibility. Contraceptive devices and abortion clinics replaced schools and orphanages. It was as if a license was given out, legitimizing the bending of every part of our lives around serving ourselves. Since that time, divorce, remarriage, abortion, pre- and extramarital sex, and even homosexuality have been ex- accepted by increasing percentages by the public. The boundaries that once seemed fixed now appear less secure. Pornography has also become big business. In 1986, 75 million pornographic videos were rented. In 1996, 10 years later, that number multiplied to 665 million. Nearly 20 years later, 2015, one of the biggest sites, one single pornographic website, are you ready? Had, had 21.2 billion visits in one year. That's one site in 2015 in one year. 21.2 billion views. How do we combat that? How do we teach our young people? And young people, you need to listen up to me tonight. There are things, and as you grow, you need to make sure you understand something. God designed for a relationship between a man and a woman to happen after you're married and not before. does not matter if you're a teenager and think you know what's best. That's not God's design. 
Anything done outside of marriage, where a man and a woman are married, that's called fornication. In God's eyes, it's sin and it's wrong. It doesn't matter if you're 17 years old. It doesn't matter if you're 60 years old. Outside of marriage, it's called fornication. Inside of marriage, when you have an affair, that sounds so much better, but it's not. It's called adultery. When you commit adultery, that's doing something God designed for a relationship between a man and a woman and between them for life. That's how God intended. One man, one woman for life. That's God's intent. That's what we read in the Bible. That's what we study in the Bible. Things happen. Things happen in life. I get all of that. But what I understand something is how do we combat what this world's trying to teach and what they're teaching our young people? The only hope that we have does not matter who we get into the White House. What matters is a return to what the Bible says and what God's plan for love truly is. And parents, may I just encourage you, as your children get older, you teach them what biblical love is. And you might say, well, that's not how I did it. Well, tell them you did it wrong. Show them what the Bible says, how it's supposed to be. So, Pastor, I don't even know all that. You get with me, I'll get you, I'll get you verses, I'll help you out so you can teach your children should know what's right. What you've got to understand is, as we look at this, the Song of Solomon gives us a beautiful picture of what God intended and what man has twisted. God wants a lasting, godly, biblical love. What we have in this world today is a fleeting, fleshly, carnal lust, and lust is not love. That's about all I'll say about that. This is the last of the poetical books. The poetical books, and for review to help you as we go back, the poetical books you have, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those are the five poetical books of the Old Testament. Now, the Bible tells us, um, do we have, and I should remember because I put these notes up last night, but I don't remember. Is 1 Kings 4.32 on there? Probably not, right? Take your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32. And if some of you are worried, like, I, should, I don't know if I should have brought my kid. I'm, that's as far as I'm going tonight, what I said. You're good. Don't worry about anything. And uh, be more worried about what you watch on your television at home. Or the commercials you let your kids watch, too. Or the YouTube that you let them watch. Woo, yeah, that, that would be good. I said I was done, but think with me for a minute. It used to be years ago that if you wanted to look at something bad, went into a store, bought a magazine, they put it in a paper bag, and you had to walk it out of the store. And now you just pick up this stupid thing, and you can get anything you want on it. And then a lot of parents are brain-dead enough to let their kids have one of these with no rules on it. Dumb, dumb, dumb. And I mean that in all love. Your kids have a cell phone. First off, no kid needs a cell phone. I'm going on 10 years of pastoring this couple weeks. You come to my office. Every single problem I've had with any teenager and parents and issues with their teenagers, their cell phone's always involved. So how do you fix the problem? Just don't have a cell phone. But my kid's going to be weird. Let them be. I'd rather them be weird than get messed up. Because it could even be this. It could be one accident that they pull up a site, not even on purpose, I'll give you an example. And you're going to think I was dumb. Yeah. I was 15, 16 years old, Christian school. My younger brother had a project he had to do for school. And his project, he was doing it on the Virgin Islands. 
So this is back when you had a modem and dial-up and all that. I know some of you, you, you don't, you hear that noise and beep and the beeping. Some of you don't even know what that is anymore. It's crazy. But um, it would take forever just to dial onto the Internet, and then sometimes it would go through, and then it would disconnect you a lot. It's starting to show age when I'm starting to talk about things in the kids' room. are like, what is that? It's, it's the, the first, it's instead of having your wireless stuff, that's just how it used to be. But I just typed in Virgin Islands to help them find stuff. I had to turn the computer screen off and let my parents deal with it because about 500 things popped up. You could accidentally, and I bet your, and kids could accidentally just pull up something. Be careful what you let them. I would not let any child just have access free reign to internet. I would not. And you say, well, my kid's trustworthy. No one is trustworthy but Jesus. I'm not trustworthy. And men, you be careful what you do. You that are watching online, you be careful what you do. Nowadays, ladies, too, everyone. And you might say, well, I, it's in private. No one sees it. Oh, God sees it. There's nothing you can hide from God. God sees all of it. But parents, you are doing your kids a uh, You're not helping them by letting them just have the devices and the things and giving them free reign. You've got to be very careful about those things. We've got to get moving or we're not going to get through both of these tonight. First Kings chapter number 4. But you, you should be thankful that you're in a church that will say something like that. And they have a pastor who will mention something like that. And even though I know it's not popular with everyone that's in our church, the thing about teens and kids having cell phones, it's still right. And I'll still preach it. And you just come to my office later on sometime. I won't tell you I told you so, but you'll remember. Anyways, First Kings 4. You can say, Pastor, that's kind of arrogant. No, I just want to help you. And if you would just, if we would just get a hold of it. First Kings 4.32, and he spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So Solomon wrote over 3,000, and then the songs of Solomon were over 1,005. Now, if you look as we dive through, we see verse number one, it says here about this here, it says, it's the song of songs, which means this is the best of Solomon's songs. Is what Song of Songs is. So it's the last of the poetical books. It's this song is one of a thousand five that Solomon wrote. One, this is the one that God chose to give us in Scripture, the one that He's preserved in His Word. Sometimes this book could also be called the Book of Canticles. I use a strong concordance. You'll sometimes see it referred to as Canticles one one. It's the same thing. It's Song of Solomon. So there's no difference. It's the same thing. But the word. The word canticle just means a hymn or a chant, kind of like a song. song of Solomon, same thing. So we look through it tonight, give you a few blanks to fill in, and I'm going to give you a few thoughts on marriage real quick, and then we'll move to the intertestament period. Who wrote it? The Bible tells us here that Solomon did. No, that was his wife, and we could give out there. So Solomon wrote it, we see that. What is the book of Song of Solomon? It's a love song in praise of marriage. It's an Old Testament <coughs> illustration of what Hebrews 13.4 tells us where it says, Marriage is honorable in all things, and the bed undefiled, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Solomon wrote it. It's a love song in praise of marriage. Go to chapter number 8 of Song of Solomon. I want you to see the theme verse. Song of Solomon 8, verse number 7. 
Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. You cannot buy love, you cannot kill love, and the only hope that we have in marriage and in these things is love. And God's love, not this world's love. Some try to outline this book, others like to break it down and not going to do any of that tonight. We're going to make it very simple, and I'll give you a few thoughts about marriage, and we'll move to in between the Old and New Testament. It was written probably towards the early part of Solomon's reign, likely around 965 B.C. is around the time that it was written. And here are the takeaways tonight from the book of Solomon. Are you ready? Number one, marriage is a gift from God. He established it which is why we shouldn't change it or abolish it. What God hath joined together, what does the Scriptures tell us? Let not man put asunder. You see, we live in a world today, today where we read marriage is. No, God made marriage. You know, and people say, well, they have their rights. Let them do what they want to do, but call it something other than marriage. Marriage belongs to God between a man and a woman. That's how God designed it. He defined it as one man and one lady for life. That's God's design for marriage. And which is why we shouldn't try to redefine it. Marriage is not man's idea. It's God's idea. But everything that God sets up and everything that God establishes, Satan seeks to have a counterfeit, and he seeks to corrupt what God has placed together. Satan advertises sex without love, personal pleasure without responsibility, multiple partners with no strings attached, that's not God's plan. God's plan is you wait to have a relationship till marriage. Let me give you young people and give you some thoughts real quick. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> you say, in this day and age, no one can stay pure till they get married. That's not true. I think that should be everyone's desire. That should be your desire. So, Pastor, I've already messed that up, so start living right today. Move forward today. You can't change yesterday. You can't change the past. You know, we look at this and we look at marriage, and I know some either watching online or some sitting in the room here, whatever the case may be, you might look and you're like, well, Pastor, you say marriage is one man, one lady for life, and my marriage has fallen apart. You just move forward for God. God loves you where you're at. And sometimes we get, and this is what you got to understand. This is what the Bible says about the Lord. He knoweth our frame. He remembers that we're dust. I'm not justifying wrong. But God knows that we're not perfect. He knows we're going to mess things up. And God will forgive. God can heal. God can restore. And God can do great things. Don't lose sight of that. And sometimes I feel, and let's make sure we understand something in the room tonight. Sometimes I feel like I, I talk on certain subjects. I'll talk on abortion. I'll talk on divorce. I'll talk on other things in these different areas. And sometimes people in the room just feel awful. And I get, and sin, there is, there is that part where we should feel bad and where we got to get right with God. But when God's forgiven you and you've moved past it, he doesn't hold on to it. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions. 
Move forward. Move forward for God. You can't look back. And yes, all of us would say tonight, if we could look back in our lives, there are many things that we would change, right? The problem is we can't go back and change it. We can start today and move forward. And that's what we need to do. But look at first, uh, first Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 1. Practical right here. Here we go. I was probably going to start turning there. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. So how do you stay away from fornication? Are you ready? Don't be all over each other. Don't come down to it. For Caroline and I, our first kiss was at the wedding altar. We'll never go any further. What's your first kiss at the wedding altar? You just, and just follow that rule. Young people, that's why at school and at different things, that's why I tell you keep your hands off of each other. Oh, but it's just this. No, no, it's just a simple touch. A simple touch will lead to a simple hug, which leads to a simple kiss. And then stay away from it. So if you just don't touch, stay away from each other. And that's pretty easy, right? Yeah, that's how the Bible designed it to be. Some people like to make it hard. That's God's plan. Follow God's plan for marriage, not the devil's. Follow God's plan for your family, not what the world says. So number one, marriage is a gift from God. Number two, marriage is a passionate, intense, and pure relationship. Marriage is a passionate, intense, and pure relationship. Husbands and wives, later on, read. Here we go. Ladies, or men and ladies, read together. Read chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, and you'll see how the man's bragging about his wife. In chapter 5, verse 10 through 16, notice how the lady is bragging on her husband. You can read through other passages through here and see how the man is gone a lot. And how the lady just longs, the wife longs for her husband to be back with her. And that's how God intended marriage to be. I don't, you know, what's the point of just being roommates? There's no point. If that's all that your marriage is, roommates, you're missing out on what God intended it to be. Marriage is supposed to be a passionate, intense, pure relationship. How so? Read this book and tell me if that's not what this puts out. Young people, don't read it yet. Married people, read it. Well, that's the problem nowadays. You can't get the married couples to kiss. You're trying to keep the young people from kissing. Your marriage, it should be a, it should be a passionate, intense, pure relationship with each other. The good thing. If you're struggling in your marriage relationship, take a, and I know this is old school, take a three by five card out and write down three things you appreciate about your spouse. And very soon your thoughts of criticism and bitterness will turn to thoughts of love and appreciation. Matthew thought that was funny, so. <coughs> Think good thoughts about your spouse, express good thoughts. Go out on a date every once in a while. Isn't that an amazing thought? You date till you, till you catch the prize, and then you forget about the prize after you've gotten the prize. And most of us, you know, all for myself, and most of you men in this room are watching online, you got way better in your wife than what you deserve, and you know that's true. God gave me far better than what I deserve. Treat 
your spouse like that. Your struggles fighting for your relationship, give your spouse the attention he or she needs, or they will find it someplace else. And that's not good either. And then number three, human relationships. Myself. A godly marriage should be the closest human relationship. They should share things that no one shares. You and your spouse should say things to each other never to anyone else or about anyone else. The closest human you should be around in life is your spouse. And we'll end it there about Song of Solomon and marriage. And now I'm going to have you take your Bibles with and go to Malachi chapter number 4. Malachi chapter number 4. We're at 710. This is good. We're at a good, good spot. I got, you, I got some of you already mad at me already from what I've said, and we've still got time to say more things to people now tonight. All right. So, now once you get to Malachi chapter number 4, turn the page, one more page, and you'll see it's probably blank in your Bible, and then you see Matthew begins. About 400 years that takes place between Malachi and the book of Matthew. And those 400 silent years we're going to look at for a minute tonight tell you some things that happened during that time. And you say, how do you know what happened during that time? Don't you see it written right there in your Bible right before your eyes? Nope, it's not there. You say, well, how do we know what happened? History tells us what happened during this time. And so, because this is, it's an amazing thing that you think of. Think about this. When the book of, when the book, the Old Testament closes, do you ever hear of a Pharisee or a Sadducee in the Old Testament? But you hear them right away in the New Testament, right? So where did the Pharisees and the Sadducees come from? They came during this time. When the book, the Old Testament closes, what's the world power at that time? Who's, who was king? Who's the last king we hear about in the Bible? Who's the last king? Anybody know? William? You don't know? Ryan, do you know the last king mentioned in the Bible? Do you have a guess? No? I think. You got one, Michael? The Lord? He is king of kings and lord of lords. That's a good answer. Just remember, you can never go wrong by saying the Lord. That's always a good statement. You know, you ask your kids from church, what did you learn about today? I learned about Jesus. Yeah, you can't really say anything about that. And so, all right. So, um, I believe the last king that's actually mentioned in the Bible would be um, Ahasuerus there with Esther. I believe that's the last, and that was of the Medes and the Persians. When we get to the New Testament, you have Herod is mentioned, but you also have Caesar, Augustus. So, the world goes from the Medes and the Persians running it the Rome running it. So a lot of things change in 400 years. Think back from here 400 years ago. 400 years ago, America wasn't here yet. Now, if you want to believe some of that garbage they're putting about, out about 1619, you know, when they try and change our history and put out how bad these people, all they're trying to do is destroy the foundations of the country you live in. 
And when we will take a piece that was written in the New York Times of the 1619 Project, basically talking about how slavery began here, and that's how America began, it's garbage. One thing I was proud to hear our president say the other day, President Trump is starting something for schools teaching history and 1776 and American history, and, teach, and it needs to be taught right. And the thing is, you have a lot of these school districts and things that are picking up on this 1619 garbage. And, no, and they, kids need to be taught history, not be brainwashed into thinking things should be a certain way. And I'll get off of all that, but what we see is everything changed. Think about 400 years ago. The King James Bible is only nine years old 400 years ago. Completely different place. The world was different 400 years ago. So we look at the in between, we look at the 400 silent years, and the theme of this is very simple. God is at work in the silence. God is at work in the silence. During those, what do I mean by that? There's no open revelation. Unrecorded prophets. You see, like the book of Malachi, in the book of Malachi, the Bible, God told Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. Remember? All the prophets, God gave the prophets their prophecies to give to the people. Well, after Malachi gave his prophecy, the prophecy stopped. What was the next prophecy to be given? In the New Testament, what was the next prophecy after the book of Malachi there? About 400 years later. There was a lady that was going to have a baby before Mary. Her cousin, Elizabeth. That's the first time, again, that God spoke to man. 400 years without it. 400 years this world was in darkness till they would see the great light. And the way would be prepared through John the Baptist leading to Jesus Christ. In that time, there in chapter number 4 of Malachi where it says, Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. To the first word, the book of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What happened? What took place? That's what we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Study. And like I said tonight, as we finish this up tonight, I'm not giving you Bible. I'm giving you history tonight, okay? On this part. I don't normally give you a message without Bible. That's why I'm glad I had Song of Solomon to start out tonight. But I'm giving you some history so you can see how the New Testament comes into play. There's an interesting study in those 400 years of how God was orchestrating things to prepare the world for the, for the arrival of his son and for the Savior. The first area I want to talk about tonight is politics. Politics? Politics. Big time politics. <laughs> the book of Malachi ends around 400 B.C. The Jews have rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel, and they're enjoying relative peace and freedom of worship under Persian rule. That lasted for about 66 years. 66 years later, in the year 334 B.C., Israel fell to the Greeks. Remember a guy by the name of Alexander the Great? You ever, you know who I'm talking about? Ancient history, I, I'm a history nerd, so all of that fascinates me. Alexander the Great conquered the known world at that time. 
And that was 66 years after this time. And so what we see happen is Israel fell to the Greeks, and Alexander the Great had taken over all of that area, the whole world. And not too long after that, a decade or so later, under Egyptian first 200 years of silence for the most part, the Jewish laws and the Jewish priesthood remained intact. In fact, if we were to go a little further, you fast forward another 100 years to around 304 B.C., you would see Antiochus of Syria took over. And so just 200 years after Malachi was written, this guy of Syria took over and he tormented and persecuted the Jews and forbid them to practice Judaism and follow their laws. What happened was, a few years later, his son, his successor, devastated Jerusalem. He defiled the temple, and the way he defiled the temple was this. He slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple. Think about that one for a second. Pigs were unclean animals. And this guy offers a pig in Jerusalem in the temple. He forbade, he forbid circumcision by threatening death if the Jews were circumcised. This guy sold thousands of slaves into slavery. He erected an altar to Jupiter. He destroyed all copies of Scripture that could be found and slaughtered everyone who was discovered to have any of the Bible during this time. And he resorted, when you think about this, he tortured them and wanted them to get rid of their religion. Have any of you heard of the Maccabean Revolt? Ryan, I'm sure you have. The Maccabean Revolt. Anybody else hear of it? Okay, I'll tell you a little bit about it tonight. There was the Maccabean Revolt, and it was one of the most heroic feats in history. And in 165 BC, the family of Maccabee, they were men who were Jewish priests, led an uprising, and they recaptured and cleansed the temple. And then after that time, there was fighting that took place um, between the Jews and the Syrians, and that went on for about 100 years. This is all that goes on in between Malachi and Matthew. And then in about 63 B.C., Rome took over the world during that time. And we're in until Christ was born, and even after that time. Paul, it was Caesar Augustus, all for the Roman world and for the world to be taxed. And if Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, was in charge, how would Mary and Joseph ever been in Bethlehem at the right time? You see how God was behind the scenes working with all Let me let you say, well, why is all this so important? Why does it matter that Alexander the Great took over the world? And then when he died, he wasn't very good at setting up a successor for him. When he died, he said to the strongest, that was great. And he had four generals there, and the four generals went and did their own thing. And they were divided, and the book of Daniel talks about all that and how that would take place. The Bible even talks about how Alexander the Great was demon-possessed. And we, we'll get more into all that later on if you want. But when you think about it, why was it so important? One of the things that um, 
that the Greeks would do when they would go conquer a city, what they would do is they would introduce to those cities the Greek architecture, the culture, the clothing. Most importantly, what they would do is they would teach the people in the cities they conquered their language. Soon, for the first time since the Tower of Babel, think about this with me, for the first time since the Tower of Babel, the rich, the poor, <coughs> the educated, the uneducated world have all spoken one language. With me for a minute. The Old Testament was written to the Jews and all about the Jewish family coming along, right? Why would it be important for Greek to be like a one-world language during that time? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, in order for the right time for Jesus to come, Alexander the Great had to conquer the known world. Why? Because the world had the same language. Where the Greek, Koine Greek, comes from. The language that they spoke. It was during that time that the Old Testament was translated into Greek, known as the Septuagint. It was also the language that the New Testament was written in. This, though the, through these political changes, the gospel would go forth in an amazing way. And you know how the Bible says that these guys turn the world You know why they could turn the world upside down? Because everyone could understand what was being read to them because the Greek was being passed along. It's amazing how that Amazingly, as that language rose to great prominence, you realize today, which today is a dead language, there's no any people groups that use that Greek today on a daily use. It's important. Languages deteriorate. The Greek never deteriorated because it died. I could go a little deeper in the sake of time, I won't. You know what that means? The meaning of the words in the New Testament never changed. The language is still. In addition to that, Rome was a strong power. The world was not at war or struggle. The time of economic stability during Augustus' reign allowed for Christianity to flourish in the days of Christ. So we see the first thing that was important was the politics of the day. Two was the infrastructure. The infrastructure of the day. What was during these silent years, especially under the Roman Empire? You know, we talk about the Romans road, right? We talk about the gospel in the book of Romans. But the most complex and thorough network of roads and Mediterranean shipping routes were established under Rome. This made it so Paul could make his missionary journeys to places he did. If Rome wasn't in charge and running things, that wouldn't have been able to. So because of the peace and the stability, the infrastructure was developed that made it so Christians could spread the gospel all over. You know how Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the most parts of the earth? That was possible because the road systems that the Romans set up. Isn't it amazing how God would use the Romans? do that? It's amazing to me. We see politics, infrastructure, this one, the religious group of the day. 
it's in this time, those 400 years, we find several things that are mentioned in the New Testament that aren't mentioned in the Old Testament. As I mentioned earlier, the Pharisees, the council scribes, and importantly, the synagogues. In Old Testament, you never heard anything. You hear anything about synagogues? You see how Jesus went into the synagogue in the New Testament? These were all established during that time, and I know this is a lot of information for you. And it's a Wednesday night, and you're tired, and you've been some of you've been in class all day, and everything else. But I'm almost done, so just bear with me for the last few minutes here. If we re- rewind the clock back to the Maccabean period, we see the Jewish rulers became more and more corrupt. And what happened was the early supporters of these rulers um, turned against them and became known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't like what they saw in the religious leaders of the day. And so what they did was these were the Pharisees were the religious conservatives who sought to keep a focus on the law and Jewish customs and traditions. In all honesty, the Pharisees, when they began, they were not a bad group. They were trying to keep the priesthood pure. They were trying to do what was right. That's how the Pharisees began. Those who remained supportive of the corrupt leaders became known as the Sadducees. So when you had these corrupt priests and these corrupt leaders, you had those who turned the Pharisees more conservative and said, we need to clean things up, God, and do things God group that split off, which was the Sadducees, and they split off because they liked, they didn't have to see a problem. So that's where we see Pharisees and the Sadducees begin. And uh, the Sadducees, they were high-ranking priests, and they did lots of different things. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. They did not like each other. Even in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had one common thing, though. They disliked Jesus more than they disliked each other. So they found an enemy that they both fought against. We think about the synagogues and how that worked. And what happened was there was a new cultural center where the main purpose was to instruct. The temple was the worship. The synagogue was the place of instruction. You remember Jesus read from Isaiah in the synagogue. That's what the synagogue was. It was more close to them and in each local community than just where the temple was where they'd go worship. And you say, well, why does all this stuff matter? And as we look at all of this, a few reasons, what, and you think about this, they were not governed by priests, and everyone belonged to one. Pharisee, Sadducee, they belonged to one of these groups. And this is what you got to understand, because of all of this, and because the synagogue and all these religious things changed around, what it did was it made for a great place for Jesus and then for Paul after him to come into a city and to preach the truths in large groups in the synagogues. They were used by God by these men. And not only that, the synagogues offered different, you think about this, they operated differently than the temple. They were congregational rules. They were bishop and deacon led, not priest led like the temple was. So it was important. The early church, if we're being honest, would, be, would pattern itself after the synagogue rather than the temple. Why? We became the temple, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? It does. The dwelling place of 
Spirit of God is in believers. And church became the gathering place to be instructed by the Word, and that's how the synagogue and temple, and hopefully you're still with me, and we're ending these last few things. I say all of that to say this. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Jesus did not come early. He did not come late. He came right on time. There was a reason and a purpose, and the Bible tells us that when the time was right, that's when Jesus came. Why 400 years? That's when the time was right. Let me give you a few thoughts as we close out tonight on this, because there's got to be some spiritual application to historical facts, right? Here we go, number one. God is always on time. God is always on time. Silence does not mean inactivity with God. I think sometimes we look and, hey, church, you watching online tonight, you here tonight, I know we're at 730 and we're rounding that finish line right now. But when God is silent, that does not mean he's not working. The book of Esther is a clear picture of that. God's name is not even mentioned once in the book, but God is clearly seen throughout the book working. And just because it was silent for 400 years, there was no open vision. God was working through the leaders and setting up a language so the whole world could get the gospel. God was setting up a people to come into power so that the roads could be built, so that the men could take the gospel they were given, and Jesus could send them out and get the gospel around to the world. All those things were put in place, the structure, the synagogue, all these things were put, and God is always on time. And just because in maybe tonight in your life, you feel like God's silent, where is God? Well, God's word always is. He's always working behind the scenes. You might not understand it. You might not see it tonight. But just because he's silent doesn't mean he's not active. So number one, God's always on time. Number two, his word is enough in silence. His word is enough in silence. They had the Old Testament. They had the Torah. They weren't seeing miracles. They weren't hearing from prophets. But they had all that they needed. How did, how did, you think about this, how did the gospel spread in the book of Acts? It wasn't by the New Testament. New Testament wasn't written yet. It was the Old Testament. His word is enough in silence. Number three, his hand is at work in silence. <coughs> his hand is at work in silence. Number four, silence should lead us to look Sometimes he has to bring us to the end of ourselves before we look for a Savior. And after 400 years, not many people were looking, were they? Well, there were a couple we could think of. Remember um, Anna and Simeon? They were looking. But the priests, hey, where's that, where's, where's that Messiah supposed to be born? Oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem or something, star. They didn't even realize it. God is at work in the silence. When you look at Matthew 1, the Bible just tells us there, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. What a way to break the silence, huh? You go from a curse to the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. The last word, curse, first word of Matthew, Jesus Christ. You go from curse to cure. Right away. 
Think about this. I heard someone say it like this, and I love this. God broke the sound barrier, the sound barrier with the cry of a baby boy. 400 silent years. We look at it, and we don't understand always why God does things the way he does, but this is what you got to understand. Like I said on Sunday, you're never going to fully understand God, but you just trust him, and he's working. And even though the Bible didn't record anything during those 400 years, God was still working. And he provided things and made a way so that and Jesus came right at the perfect time. What if he would have came earlier? It wouldn't have been the right time. God knew the perfect time. Think about this. Why doesn't the Lord just come tonight for us? He knows the perfect time. Why doesn't God fix my problems? He knows the perfect time. Trust him. He could take care of Jesus and use the Romans and use Alexander the Great, use all these people, all these awful people. He could use Gavin Newsom and other people too. God's still at work. Look at our world as crazy as it is and COVID and everything else all around it. God's still at work. COVID doesn't throw God for a loop. People don't throw God for a loop. He knows. God can work and he is working. Keep your eyes on him. And even if it does, and you're like, I just don't see him in my life. He's there. When through the deep waters will be with thee. You know what we just sang about earlier tonight? I'll never, no, never forsake. He's right there. 400 silent years, where was he? He was still there. He was working something out. And that's what our God does. Father, we